You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. Find us on facebook.com slash surfing or at surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 13 of the Surf Simply podcast. We're recording on Tuesday, the 14th of May, 2015. My name is Harry Knight, and with me today is Rue Hill. Hello, everyone. And Asha King. Hey, guys. And in a very exciting turn of events, we are recording to you on location in uh, Nicaragua. We're actually sitting on the beach. Well, about about 10 metres back from the beach at Playa Colorado in Nicaragua. It's close enough that we can see people get tubed out of the window. Yeah, yeah. We've, we've been here on a little surf vacation because the, the Surf Simply Resort in Costa Rica is shut for three weeks in May so that everyone has a little bit of a break. So we thought we'd rent out a house by the beach here in Nicaragua. We drove up. It's about four or five hours drive. Yeah. Although with the border crossing, it ended up being more like 10 hours. And uh, yeah, and we're all staying here. And Asha, you've surfed more than any human being I should surf in a day. I think this is about the most I've ever surfed in a in a three day period. Did you? How many sessions did you have the first day we were here? I don't think uh, it would be worth counting at that point. I think it was. I just think one I think you did. I think you said session. it was seven sessions that you'd done. Yeah, it was about seven, more That's or less. Yeah, the thing is, an entire day because of Lake Nicaragua, the winds offshore here all day. And the surf's been really good. It's been like about head high with the odd double overhead set coming in. Yeah, a couple of bigger sets and yeah, just fun. And when you're sitting in our house, you're looking straight at the main peak, which is probably close enough that you could hit a tennis ball and like it would land on someone who's taking off on the waves. Yeah. Which actually, that's just a thought for this afternoon. Yeah, but maybe we could. Yeah, so you come in from a surf and you sit down and you're having a drink and you're just watching it going off and you're like, I, like, I, I, I have to go surfing again. Yeah. I can't sit here. I I on did the couch. have after a couple of days of it. I felt so beaten up and destroyed yesterday. I had a really bad like, headache from being in the sun so much. But it looked kind of good, and I really wanted to go back in the water. You so I, push back. I didn't actually have a very good surf in the end because I think I went out in the wrong mood. But um, yeah, it's very hard to ignore. So yeah, other than being at Colorado's, uh, what have you guys been up to? I've been flip flopping between wide flat shortboards and narrow boards with more rocker in them, mm-hmm. and it's like. Part of me is clinging on to the dream that I really need a high-performance shortboard. And then there's part of me that really just likes having a board that paddles super easy, <laughs> gets into waves a little early, it especially on a busy peak. Especially waves that are barreling, just getting in so you can set your line nice and early and be all casual about it. And, and I keep flip-flopping back and forth. We, you know, we were talking about... You know the board you should try is the Puddle Jumper by uh, Lost. The Puddle Jumper? Yeah. Which is, they've taken that... The, just the name, I'm not sure what board it is, but judging from the name, I'm thinking it's really, really wide and really flat. It's quite wide, but it's not flat. It's gone for that slightly wide outline and certainly a full nose, but then it's got a very kicked rocker in the back end and it's got big concave running through the middle of it. So it's it's a, a board that's designed to be surfed pretty aggressively off the back foot. That's really interesting. I might yeah. actually give that a go. You because have a look at it anyway. We've been talking a lot about our Hypto Cryptos recently. And uh, actually, we put a photo up on Instagram yesterday of the three of us with our three identical Hypto Cryptos. Matching boards. <laughs> like waxing them up, ready to go out. We did. It's we did look nerdy. a bit special. <laughs> um, but I've been surfing it, you know, with, the, with those flatter boards that haven't got much rocker in. The, the big problem is when you're trying to do vertical turns off the top and you end up catching your rail a lot. Yeah. And, you know, I was surfing that hip toe just thinking this would be so good with just a little bit more rocker in it so yeah. that you could do well, top Particularly to out turns. the back, they are very flat, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that the puddle jumper, uh, who makes that lost? Lost, yeah. Which yeah, is, is one of their new ones. On the subject of boards, did you guys watch that Stab in the Dark movie? 
Oh, so good. It came out. This is, for those of you guys that haven't seen this, uh, Stab Magazine did a little feature and they, I think they got 12 shapers involved in total and they asked them to shape a 6.0 shortboard for West Oz for a six foot, 180 pound CT level surfer. And they had to shape the boards with no identifying features, no no logos, no identifiable carbon patch technique or anything like that. And uh, they then all rocked up and the, the mystery surfer was Julian Wilson. He went out and surfed all of these boards. And, and How many boards were there in total? Well, they only got 11. Um, John Pizel was meant to have sent one over, but it didn't arrive in time. So they actually ended up only doing 11 boards. But the, the really cool thing was seeing like Julian Wilson going through and he, Julian Wilson isn't sponsored by anyone. He rides lots of different boards at different places, depending on where he is and what he's doing. But the really cool thing was seeing him pick these, these logo-less boards up, put them under his arm, sort of look along the rocker and go, yeah, probably a Channel Islands. Yeah, I think that was JS. And he was getting it right. Like, that's the crazy, he even picked out, I, I was watching the, the, the board that he reckoned was the best one was a DHD and he'd even ping down the model. How many out of the eleven boards did he get right? They didn't. They didn't do a tally on on what no, he got. He got, the, uh, he got the Simon Anderson wrong. I think. Yeah, he he got it definitely on the on the video. It showed him getting confused between a Simon Anderson and a Dahlberg, but he picked out the Mayhem. Um, he picked out Channel Islands, and and they're the they're the companies that he rides for on a regular basis. So or whose boards he rides on a regular basis. He even called which one he was going to like the most. Picked up the DHD and just said, "Oh yeah, this is going to go really good." Yeah. And it ended up going really good. I, I thought it was really interesting that, what was the board in fourth or fifth place? Oh, the JS, which yeah, he snapped JS, on the first wave. He snapped it on the first wave, and it still came in in the top half. That's a little weird. Can you tell how a board works from one bottom turn? I would say that probably there's not really enough uh, enough data on that for him to be no. making an accurate, no. yeah. accurate one to zero. I mean, yeah, I was talking with our friend Brad, who's a pilot, and he was talking about how they test, you know, different kinds of wing fall and whatnot. And he's sort of saying, well, why can't you do the same thing with surfing? You know, why not? And the reason that we can't, in my opinion, the reason that we're so far away from being able to make accurate decisions about the real-time effect of for most surfers of most subtle nuance difference in width and rocker and tail shape mm-hmm. and so forth is because of the inability to control all the variables apart from just the board yeah. and when we get to the stage where we've got a really good wave pool and you can have a pro surfer go out and just perform exactly the same turn 50 or 100 times on one board 50 or 100 times the other board and you're and measuring all the all waves are identical all the waves are yeah. identical and then you're 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 measuring exactly not just his perception of how good it felt you know when he's full of energy versus when he's tired and cheesed off with the whole thing yeah. but how the actual board moved that when we get to that stage that's when we're going to really start seeing yeah, when you you're, know, me- you're measuring the speed and the torque and the flex of the board. Right, that's when we're going to really start seeing board development. I mean, I tell you what's interesting. If you look back to the early 90s when everyone was riding, we were talking about this this morning, when everyone's riding like 6.2s really and 6.3s that were like 17 wide, you know, you can have this this emperor's new clothes effect where everyone's like, oh, this guy's riding it, so it must be good. Yep. And the variables are so great that a whole culture of people can kid themselves that the wrong board is the right board for like yep. a decade. And it's naive to think that that's not still happening now to a greater extent. Oh, absolutely. Extent. Harry, I've seen you try a million boards this week. It seems like almost every 10 <laughs> waves you come in and just like switch a fin or, uh, or, or pick up a new board or, or just change something a little. Yeah, it's, well, it's not often that you get you know, this, this ability to be so close to the beach because it's a very short paddle out here as well. Yeah. You know, you, from being water's edge to being in the lineups, about, what, a 10, 15 second paddle. Mm-hmm. And so the great thing is it, it, 
when we're back in Guiana, it's like, first of all, it's you don't really want to leave boards and, no. and fins and things lying around on the beach. And even if you did, on a good day, it can be quite a paddle in and out. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's fun. Like, I've been playing around with different fin setups and quads and thrusters and changing different boards over and took two boards that were very, very similar and surfed them. You know, surfed one for about 10, 15 minutes, came back in, changed it over, changed back again 15 minutes later. And it's just really fun to, to feel those little differences. Have you been up to anything else very much the last couple of weeks, Ash? Well, other than surfing my brains out the last few days, I've been watching a bit of the Rio contest, which seems to be everyone's favorite contest to hate. But yeah, it looked like they had uh, pretty good waves today. Uh, Slater got that 19-point heat total in yeah. round one, but kind of more than what's going on in the contest is what's going on outside of the contest has been pretty big this year. Did you see the post on WSL where they were talking about uh, sort of advice for people arriving at the contest. Yeah, that was the strangest write-up. They said something about, don't use your sat-nav when you're coming into Rio because it might take you through some dangerous parts of town. Right, so I saw that and I was thinking, oh, if I was thinking about going to the Rio contest, this would be really cool having a little page telling me about it. And then I read that first bit and I was like, oh, oh well, that sounds pretty sketchy. I, I guess there's a way around it. There. I mean, it'll probably be all right. And then it Once I get, get to the better. beach, it'll be fine. Yeah, and then... The next thing they said was, oh, yeah, uh, you probably shouldn't go surfing either because the locals probably aren't going to like that unless you're a pro or a girl. And then I was thinking, okay, well, I probably wouldn't go, but at least it'll be all right for the pros and the girls, I guess. Yeah, and then you read the article that uh, the water is too contaminated to surf in right now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> And then I was like, yeah, maybe, maybe I'll just... Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm going <laughs> to <gonna> watch the <laughs> webcast. <laughs> Yeah, they've been running some water tests and the, the backup venue they've actually dropped because it failed every single test yeah, that they've run they've, over the two months. I think they've watched it 27 times. They've checked it 27 times and it's failed every one of them. Yeah, and then the main venue failed like 21 of the 27. So yeah, the world, world, tour, the world contest is on at the moment in a sea of poo. <laughs> Turns out Rio does in fact have shit waves. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so on to the news. It's been a busy couple of weeks, actually. A few little things have sort of taken my notice. The first one at the top of my list is the very sad death of Sean Barney Barron. Earlier this week, he died of a suspected heart attack. Do you remember him doing the sort of fake commercial in campaign? Had to, had to be the best skit in any surf movie that was, ever. I'm not usually a big fan of comedy skits in 90s oh, surf movies, so funny. but that was epic. <laughs> he was running along the beach in slow-mo. And uh, <laughs> Speedo, <laughs> yeah, the real the hairy chest. And his moustache. Yeah, it's pretty funny. What happened? No real details been released yet. He died in his home. He was 44, which is pretty young. I mean, I guess that whole Santa Cruz scene back in the day was known for partying pretty hard. So I don't know whether it's a, a byproduct of that or if he's been ill recently or, or, or what's going on. But either way. Very, uh, very sad news. Do you remember any of those wetsuits that he used to wear? He used to have the Superman-themed, or yeah. superhero-themed wetsuits. So he yeah, had, uh, he, he, he actually snuck that in, because this is back in the 90s where it was all, like, whiteboard, black, black wetsuit. wetsuit. And uh, he had his wetsuit company make him... Uh, Hotline. Yeah, it was Hotline. He had them make, like, a red and blue suit. Like a Spider-Man-themed one. Well, so he then got out the permanent marker and did all the Spider-Man webs all over it. Oh, it's so good. He used to have a Stormtrooper one as well. Yeah. Oh, I used to love his surfing in the Vulcan videos so much. He's one of those first air guys. I was really pushing yeah. surfing above the lip. 
Yeah, yeah it's like him and Flea and Pete Mel all sort of came up together, didn't they? And they yeah. became the Mavericks crew. Yeah, kind the Mavericks the air crew. Air guys as well as big waves. Yeah. Real, real weird sort of specialization. Yeah. Big, big airs in small waves and charging big waves. Well, kind of what those guys from Maui do now, like the Albi layers and the... Yeah, that's yeah. very true. Very true. So moving on with the news, the uh, waiting period has started for this year's Cape Fear event. Um, you remember the, the Red Bull event that they ran at, uh, at ours in Australia? Cape Fear does not sound like a very friendly wave. Uh, it looks like a horrible wave. Like that, that to me is the worst wave possible. Yeah, on one side of the spectrum you'd have Pleasure Point and the other side is Cape Fear. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I don't, that doesn't sound like a wave I want to surf at all. Yeah. But um, yeah, keep, keep your eyes open, guys. The waiting period runs from now until the 1st of August, uh, which is basically the Southern Hemisphere winter. If they get a good big swell, it will be really, really interesting because they have a very different contest format. There's 16 guys. They're matched up head-to-head with another surfer. They do 30 minutes of towing and 30 minutes of paddling into this mutant, horrible slab just outside Sydney. On the subject of big waves... The big wave event obviously happened at Punta de Lobos. We mentioned that last episode. Down in Chile? Down in Chile, indeed. Um, is it Chile or Chile? I believe Chile. All right. I believe but it's I may, Chile. But I might Chile be wrong. Chile is a southwest dish. <laughs> <laughs> Served with beans and meat. Uh, so Makurkai Rothman won the event, and Ramon Navarro, who we were talking about last episode. The fisherman's son. The fisherman's son, indeed. He came third. It, it looked like it was a good event, but obviously we didn't get to see any of it live. I thought, given that they decided to pull the live webcast, it was really, the little edits that they did were really bad. Yeah. Like one camera angle. At least they uh, they did live scores, as if I want to see live scores f- flash on the screen instead of people <laughs> ride giant waves. Well, yeah. Or boxes of numbers changing. But you would, really you would think, I mean, it's not like cameras are particularly expensive. You can go into a, you know any store and buy like 10 camcorders, set them up on the beach. If all you're going to do is a post-production edit, mm-hmm. just get camcorders on the beach and video the wave from at least two or three different angles so that you're getting something interesting. Uh, you've just pulled a, I, I, I get it, it's hard to fly all of that, those people and the equipment down for an event at short notice, but they could have done something between an all or nothing. Exactly. And then there was a little bit of controversy because there was a local sports show had set up on the beach and, and were live broadcasting after the WSL had said they weren't going to be able to do it because of local infrastructure. And then the, the little local Chilean TV program started live webcasting and, yeah, the, WSL, and got, the WSL shut them down. Yeah, the man shut them down, huh? Yeah. Are you kidding me? No, yeah. they got, they got the police cool. involved and uh, shut them down, told them to go. Oh, not cool, WSL. Well... You say that, but from the WSL's perspective, like they've just signed, um, in fact, this is also in the news, they've just signed uh, Taghur, the watch company, as a sponsor. They've obviously got Samsung and Jeep and all of these companies that are coming online. So they're going to be in breach of contract if they start letting footage of events go out without all of the right sponsorship on there. Exactly. Well, you got to think, like, there's no way that uh, the NBA or the NFL or any other big sports league would ever have content going out without their name on it. No, absolutely. But they, and they have the advantage that it's happening in a stadium that they control. Exactly. So it, it's a lot harder to control that on the beach. And sometimes I guess you do have to be a bit heavy handed. But it did kind of feel a little bit weird. Can I, I can see that if they're filming it themselves, they don't want other versions going out. But if they're not even filming it themselves and there's another camera crew down there, what what about if they're just amateurs? I mean, what, where do they draw the line? What about if you're just if you if you and I are sitting on the beach? In France or Trestles, just filming the whole thing on our 
Well, I think the point would come as to whether you were street. Like, if you're just filming it, then that's fine. It's if you're distributing it. Poor, that's a pretty blurry so line if you're, in this day and age, though, isn't it? Well, not particularly. How many people have you got like, on, on social media following you, Asha? Not as many as Surf Simply. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a lot, though. You've got a pretty sturdy following of... Uh, decent following. Yeah, yeah. Uh, on Instagram. I don't know if you crossed the line where the WSL would hunt you down for redistributing their media. I don't know. Only one way to find out. Yeah. I guess we'll see in France in September. <laughs> <laughs> so again, on the subject of big waves, we were talking about an alternative format for the Big Wave World Tour. I spent several hours editing and listening back over the conversation. I had a pretty good idea, I think, for how you could run the Big Wave World Tour and the XXL Awards and kind of bring it together into a much more interesting format. Okay, so listen up, WSL. Here it comes. Here it comes. What you do is you maybe you break the year down into, say... Over the you know over the course of the year, break it down into four quarters. Okay, classic. Already, at, it's a classic. Already, formula. it's a classic format. At the end of the quarter, you have the the meteorological team call. What were the two or three biggest storm events anywhere in the world? What were the biggest storm events in that quarter? Any ride from any landfall anywhere for those for that storm is eligible, and so you start having some winners and some losers from that storm regardless of whether it was at mavericks or at jaws or or wherever ah. on the expectation that you know these big wave surfers they're going to fly to wherever the waves are, are best that's what they do for a living anyway and there's going to be camera crews and so what you then do is at the end of each quarter you can effectively post broadcast those two events in a in a package like here are all the waves that we've had and you can have a the judging can almost be more of a round table discussion like have a panel of experts shown all the the really cool waves and discuss it and decide who's the winner of the storm a event yeah what do you think surfing in big waves is really tough to package into a heat yeah i mean catching a even if you have an hour-long heat it's it's tough to line up with a wave so big it might take you two or three hours yeah i don't think it's fair on competitors to say afterwards after the event oh that one counted towards the world title and this one didn't because some people are not interested in the world title. Some people are more interested in trying to win that world title than just ride big waves. There, there is that difference. And big, big wave surfers need to know, okay, I want to compete for the world title, so this is where I need to be. And not telling them till afterwards doesn't give them the opportunity to do that. I think it would be fairer to just say, let's split the year into quarters and, you know, XXL style best submission of this quarter, the next quarter, and the next quarter. So you have you can win four quarters of the year, and then whoever gets the you know the most points or wins or placings throughout those four quarters wins the world title. But I think that the point is it doesn't matter where you go with my format. You're saying it's not fair because you don't know what's happening. If you're a big wave surfer, and there's a big purple storm in the middle of the Pacific, you're not going to be sitting on your butt. You're going to go and surf. And so it's not a case of, right, well, it's only going to count if you're surfing Mavericks. It's if you catch any wave at all, anywhere in the world, while this storm is is functional, that counts. That's a cool idea, actually, because choosing where you want to surf, you could argue, is as much of the big wave. Exactly. And Uh, I I would say that of big wave culture, you know, being in the right place at the right time is as much a skill as the paddling out and catching the wave and so this this format that i've i've invented (laughs) rewards both of those things it rewards catching the best wave but it also rewards reading the storm and saying all right mavericks is going to be better than cortez bank 
I, th- I still think that they, if they're going to call it on storms, they've got to call it before the storm. But then how do you know what's going to be? Th- this is the advantage. You see, the guys are going to surf regardless. Like you're going to surf somewhere. If there's, there's, there's only what, three, four storms each quarter? Or if it's quarters, couldn't you just have it kind of an open period? Couldn't you just surf anywhere during that four month period? Yeah, you could do. And it's then, but it's then only four. There's only four events, so there's not much differentiation yeah. to then try and pick a world champion. Whereas the advantage is if you have two events in each quarter, that's then eight judged events, which allows for a bit of separation. Yeah, I like that idea. Okay, okay I think we should open this up to our listening audience. If anyone has got any improvements on the H-bomb system of judging big wave surfing, <laughs> then uh, let us know. So yeah, carrying on with the news, Surf Stitch. They've bought Stab Magazine and Magic Seaweed. How much did they buy them for? Uh, 20 million total. I think it was thir- 13 and a bit million in cash and then the rest in shares. That's pretty interesting. Wow. And Surf Stitch kind of like the Amazon of, of surfing. Yeah, very much so. It's, it's like a, a big online retailer for everything from flip-flops to surfboards. And Stab Magazine have a kind of an alternative... Kind of the edgier yeah, that's, media outlet. That's the right word. They're not alternative. Yeah. They're just edgier. They're intentionally a little bit controversial with their articles. Yeah, that's their niche. and they're, they're not too afraid to... Um, to load their punches rather than pulling them. They, they don't seem to be too worried about losing advertising revenue, which is good. And um, Magic Seaweed is a UK thing, right? Well, the Magic Seaweed was a UK thing, but it's now, I, I, I believe from the press releases that come out from this, that Magic Seaweed is the second biggest surf-related website in the world. Behind Surfline. Behind Surfline, just in terms of user traffic, because everyone's going on and checking, checking the surf so often. But yeah, anyway, so Surf Stitch now sort of has all corners of the market covered because... The other thing that Magic Seaweed does a lot in Europe is online retail. So they've now got online retail in Europe and Australia. They've got journalism media outlet. Massive media outlet between Magic Seaweed and Stab. And then they've got the second biggest online forecasting site. So I mean that's that's quite a, a holy trinity. So more news from the land down under. Have you guys seen the Air New Zealand flight safety video? Oh, it was ridiculous. Yeah. I I have to say I, actually I was a little bit disappointed with it. I, when I saw that they'd done it, I got very excited. Because have you seen the ones that they did for The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings? The, the Hobbit <laughs> one was amazing. Those were amazing. And, and it's the, one of the funniest YouTube videos I've ever seen. Yeah. So if you guys, I haven't seen it. What was it? Well, so if you guys want to have a look. So Air New Zealand, a couple of years ago, started going down the route. You know the video that they play when you get on the aeroplane that tells you to buckle your seatbelt really and wear your dry, life? Really dry, really dry, really dull. Yeah. So Air New Zealand decided they were going to mix it up, and they started doing these really different ones. And obviously... Air New Zealand, it's where The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit was filmed. The first one that they did, they got all the actors from The Lord of the Rings to come in and did this very stylized flight safety video. It must cost them a fortune, but it, it's actually it's really cool. You do end up watching it. And then they did another one with um, Betty White Betty White in a Florida retirement home. Which, uh, like, it's really funny to show the emergency lighting at night. It's all these old people sneaking, sneaking between each other's, each other's bedrooms. Rooms. <laughs> And anyway, so this this latest one, they've gotten a load of pro surfers to do it, but it just it doesn't it's quite pretty silly. It's quite silly, but it doesn't work in quite the same way. Yeah, but yeah, I they've got Anastasia Ashley and Mick Fanning, Gabriel Medina. For some reason, I don't trust Gabriel Medina to tell me to clip my seatbelt as much as I do when Gandalf says it while yeah. riding on the back <laughs> of a hawk. Yeah. Exactly. I'm you not sure why, but Gandalf's <laughs> credibility on that hawk just seems way more. What about Led Hamilton showing you how to inflate a life jacket, though? You'd listen to him. Yeah, he does probably know a thing or two about 
life jackets. Excellent. So there's a, a few events happening or that have happened. We've had two QS 10,000 events, the old Prime events. One was the Trestles event that happened a couple of weeks ago, which Philippe Toledo won. Do you guys watch any of those heats? Oh, Philippe just smoked everybody. I, they were very average waves, weren't they? Like, it wasn't epic, but his wow, surfing there was some was good not surfing. average. Really, really good. I'd say he's probably the best aerialist in the world right now. Certainly small waves, yeah. Yeah, I mean, John John goes higher, but Philippe's completion radi- ratio is just ridiculous. That's insane, isn't it? Um, and then there was another 10,000 event down in Brazil before this recent event, which was won by, and I, ho- I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Alex Ribeiro. The really interesting thing is that both of those events, Jeremy Flores was the runner-up, which so now he's puts him... pretty good on the QS, huh? Yeah, so he's now winning the QS by a pretty solid margin. I think he's 4,000 points ahead of anybody else. So he's on the he's on the CT tour as well at the moment, but he's just doing the QS to to back himself up so that if he drops off the CT at the end of the year he'll, he'll re-qualify. requalify because he finished at the top of the WQS so he'll essentially drop off and then be promoted and replace the space that he lost exactly and and he he was in a very similar situation at the end of last year going into the Hawaii events he was right on the bubble wasn't right he? on the bubble to, and then he had a very successful Hawaiian campaign but if he hadn't done that he wouldn't be on the tour right now so, so I think I, he's, I guess he's year, learned he's, his lesson yeah <laughs> just backing himself up um, anything else you guys want to ping on the on the news? Oh, I just I heard about this Kiala Kennelly thing. And oh, yeah. I just you know she, so if you haven't heard, she was supposed to be in Soul Surfer, the Bethany Hamilton movie, and she she wasn't in it. And there's some there's a lot of allegations being made. Everything's all very apparently and allegedly, but yeah. uh, the claim is that she was excluded because she's gay. And uh, apparently this was because the producers of the movie are quite religious and, you know, all of that stuff. So she's she's in court at the moment in Hawaii uh, where she's suing the makers of the movie. And, I, I, you know, obviously we can't comment about whether the reason she was left out of the movie is just because it was better the movie without her in it. But if the reason that she was left out of the movie was because she was gay... Yeah, it I really seems hope a she, bit ridiculous. Yeah, I really hope she wins the case. Not least yeah. because it's super ironic making a film about a woman who's ha- had to overcome adversity and then excluding a woman who has had to overcome dealing with being gay <laughs> in a society <laughs> that's largely unaccepting of it by excluding her for the, from the film. Yeah. So, you know, if that is the reason that she was kept out of it, then I really hope she uh, takes them to the cleaners. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so just one last little thing in the news that, that kind of got me excited. Uh, the University of California in San Diego have been working on creating biofuels using oil, uh, the oils that's produced by algae. Algae or algae? Whichever you like. Tomato um, or tomato? Tomato, tomato. Yeah, the, the algae or algae, uh, they produce oils, and actually that's what a lot of, you know, what we think of as petrochemicals. They come from that. It's just been distilled very slowly over time by being stuck in the earth, and they've been trying to speed up the process between plant and petrol. And as a byproduct of that, they worked with the guys at Arctic Foam to create a polyurethane blank and made a surfboard out of it. From an environmental point of view, of course, whenever you're doing anything like that, the the really big advantage is that you're taking CO2, which has been absorbed by the algae, algae within our lifetime, and yes. then just letting that back out into the environment again. So it's carbon yes. neutral. You're not taking the CO2, which has been absorbed millions of years ago, and then pumping it back into the environment like you are with fossil fuels. Exactly. And, it, and the other advantage being that it's, you know, it's a renewable resource. It might not be an environmentally friendly resource totally, but it is at least renewable. Of course, it's worth bearing in mind that while it's a nice gesture, I would have thought that 90% of the CO2 output 
of the production of a surfboard is still in the fuel that's transporting the surfboard, transporting the materials for yes. the surfboard, and driving the surfboard to the beach or flying it to Indo when you get a your boat yeah, trip. Yeah, I would, you know, I would that suspect that that's probably true. But nevertheless, it's 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 nice to see the little things. They they glass the board with uh, entropy resin, which again is a a bio resin. Yeah, the whole thing was just um just a, a cool little project to see. Entropy resin. Yes. Isn't entropy the idea that nothing in the universe can become more complex? Entropy is the idea that everything decays. Yeah, everything, like you, a sand castle turns into a load of sand. Yes. But it doesn't turn back into a castle again on its own. Yeah, and so the whole point of this is that the resin will break down over time so the board becomes more biodegradable. Oh, I love it when surf industry products hijack science sounding names or even just make up their own words. Like when you get a wetsuit and it's like, it says... Techno butter. <laughs> I've got, it's That's got to be science. Thermospan techno flex chest. <laughs> You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast. Okay, so I want to talk to you guys a little bit about practice and some of the science behind it, because if there's a sport that needs a lot of practice, it's surfing. Well, and also it's a sport where it's actually quite hard to practice because every time you do something, it's a little bit yeah, different in surfing. It's not like you can just go out and hit a backhand return over and over and over again. That's right, but there are things that you can do and have an enormous amount of value. No. So. First of all, I need you guys to get comfortable with the idea that you are living in the past and reality is merely an illusion. Oh, how so? Okay, well, you're not actually living that far in the past. You're living about 80 milliseconds in the past, which is just under a tenth of a second, because that's how long it takes our brains to create a model of reality of what's going on around us in our own heads. Sounds kind of like the Matrix. It's not quite like the Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> so, nervous. <laughs> I think you stole this plot. From Keanu Reeves. <laughs> Keanu so, wants his plot back. So uh, th- there's some pretty there's some pretty solid science behind this. Don't worry, I'm not about to go all uh, all hippie and new age on you guys. Mm-hmm. So nerve impulses travel around the body at a maximum of 250 miles an hour. But even when the impulses get to the brain, the brain doesn't immediately transform that information into our picture of reality. It actually waits for up to 80 milliseconds to see if any new information comes in, which might h- help contextualize the information it already has. Let me give an example. So that's why if you tap your nose with your finger and then you tap your toe with your finger at the same time, you'll perceive them as happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. Whereas actually the impulse from your toe must have got to your brain after the impulse from your nose. Your, your, Your brain is really telling you a lie, but it's telling you a lie which gives you a better impression of what's happening around you than... Than the right, because there should be a few milliseconds difference between the tap on the nose and the tap on the foot. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you know how in a lightning storm, you see the lightning and then you hear the thunder afterwards? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows that's because light travels faster than sound. But what about when someone talks to you from the other end of a tennis court? Have you noticed that there doesn't seem to be a lag between seeing their mouth move and hearing the words? Yeah, yeah now you mention it. That's because your eyes see their mouth move but then your brain waits for just under a tenth of a second to see if any more information comes in, which helps your brain construct a better picture of reality. And sure enough, just under a tenth of a second later, the sound waves arrive, and then your brain matches them up with the mouth moving. So what you perceive is the mouth moving and the sound coming out at the same time. Now, what's the what's the limit on that? Because if you go further, you can see someone, say, fire a gun in the distance, and then 
here. you hear that sound connected. Yeah, exactly like the lightning and the thunder thing, yeah. right. So that works because the tennis court's only 23 metres long. Okay. So sounds that occur more than 30 metres away take longer than 80 milliseconds to get to your ears. And so those sounds don't arrive in time to get stitched together with the visual information. It's called the 80 millisecond rule. So basically, you live in the centre of a sphere about 60 metres in diameter. In the centre, sounds and sights line up perfectly. Anything further out than that doesn't. Isn't that cool? That is really cool. cool. Uh, So what's all this got to do with surfing? Okay, well, let's think about it more broadly in the context of sports coaching first. Almost every sport requires a reaction time faster than 80 milliseconds, faster than that tenth of a second. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to drive a NASCAR, dodge a boxing punch, or hit the lip on your surfboard. Mm -hmm. So do successful athletes have faster reaction times? Well, actually, when you consider that you have to add to the 80 milliseconds the time it takes to make a decision about how to react to whatever you've perceived, and then you've got to send the nerve impulses to your muscles to get them to move in the right way... Mm -hmm. Top athletes' reaction times is actually even longer than 80 milliseconds. It's about 200 milliseconds, which is a fifth of a second. Yeah, and I remember they they tested, was it Schumacher, the, the race car driver? And they tested him, and his reaction time was not... It was very, very much in the middle of the bell curve. He wasn't exceptional in any way, shape, or form. That's exactly right. So what I found really interesting when I was researching this was that top athletes have about the same reaction times as uh, doctors, teachers, lawyers, accountants, and uh, you. So, So what's going on here? Have either of you guys heard of Jenny Finch? Jenny Finch? Nope. Jenny Finch is an elite softball player. Now, a major league baseball pitcher can throw a ball at about 95 miles an hour. Softball pitchers only throw at about 65 miles an hour. Because it's underhand. It's underhand, yeah, yeah, it's underarm. Uh, And even though they're only throwing from 43 feet instead of 60 feet, the actual time that the ball is in the air is still longer. So in other words, to hit a softball rather than a a major league baseball, uh, you actually just need a slower reaction times. Plus, the softball is bigger than a baseball. So it's, but it should be easier. It should but be easier. Two and right? a half times the size. Right. So Jenny Finch got famous because she would regularly strike out major league hitters at exhibition games over and over again to the point where the best hitters in the world didn't even want to hit against her because it was really embarrassing for them. They were completely baffled and they couldn't figure out why it was. What's happening in a regular major league game is that the hitter has watched balls being pitched hundreds of thousands of times and is able to unconsciously pick up on the body movements of the pitcher and even the flash of the seam across the ball as it leaves the pitcher's hand. So they make an entirely unconscious guess about where they think the ball is going to end up. And if you look, you can actually see the swing beginning before the, the, before the ball has even left the pitcher's hand. So that old keep your eye on the ball thing that you hear coaches say is actually complete nonsense. Yeah. If, it, if it wasn't for the psychologically uh, negative effect of shutting your eyes, you could actually shut your <laughs> eyes once the ball had left the pitcher's hand and it wouldn't make any difference to the likelihood of hitting the ball. No wonder I'm so bad at hitting baseballs. <laughs> <laughs> so when Jenny was pitching, she's throwing underarm and all the body movements are completely different. And it was all so unfamiliar to the major league hitters that they had no ability to predict 80 milliseconds into the, con- into the future. And so they couldn't create an accurate picture of what's happening in the now, so they couldn't hit the ball. So when you're out surfing, exactly the same thing is happening. Negotiating a steep, ta- steep takeoff, choosing your line and how to weight your board when you're inside the tube, uh, timing of when you're going to hit the lip, these are all things that re- require a reaction time faster than is physically and biologically possible. Yep. And so your brain's ability to predict the future is key. But the only way your brain can predict the future is if you've put in enough baseline data for it to create a good cognitive database so that your brain can make an accurate judgment call about what's going to happen next. Yeah. 
As we all know, as coaches, when people are first taking off on unbroken waves, the first 10, 20, 30 unbroken waves, the surf is completely overwhelmed by how quickly things are happening. Yeah. And they're not able to respond in time. But with repetition, the brain starts to be able to predict the future better. So it seems to us as if their reaction time is speeding up. And it seems to them as if the whole experience is slowing down and becoming easier. You may be thinking that this all just translates into spending more time in the water, but I'd say the take home is actually this. Whatever specific maneuver or skill you're working on, make sure you're looking at the part of the wave which is going to inform how you're going to perform the rest of that maneuver. Because if you're looking at it, you're building up that cognitive database. So even if you're not successful in performing the maneuver, the next time it will seem to slow down and your reactions will feel like they're speeding up. Yeah, I always get people, particularly when we're getting people to angle their takeoff and set off down the line. I always sort of, I, going through this same thing, I always try and explain to people how important it is to look up at the lip and just build that, you know, the first couple of times that the wave section's out, it's just going to take the board away from you. But the more times that you're looking along the wave, the more you're going to read that situation. That seems really applicable to what we've been doing here this week. Colorado's is uh, kind of known for being a tube wave. I mean, it's so important to look where you're going in the tube, right? Right, so I mean, th that's a really good example. In fact, I always explain that to begin with when you're trying to get tube riding right, you have to just get into 100 or 200 tubes and don't worry about coming out, but just make sure that you're watching the lip at the mouth of the barrel and then just try and make as much distance as you can inside the barrel. You're just trying to build up that database in your brain so that your brain is better at predicting what's going to happen in 80 milliseconds time. Yeah. And that's when you find that you'll start having the ability to make decisions about how to navigate the tube better rather than just pulling in and hoping for the best. Yeah, there's so many yeah. variables in there. Presumably there's also that side as well that you want to spend a lot of time looking and reading the waves so that you can predict all right, which, which are the waves that are going to barrel. Where do I want to mm -hmm. sit? You know, not just how do you ride it, but how do you pick the right wave and be in the right situation? You know, the more you're building up that database... The, you always see when, when we're teaching people to catch waves for the first time that they're not sure if they should spin and go and that, that process of trying to intellectualize watching the wave stand up and break really takes a lot of time and as soon as people have got that 15-20 waves at least they just start to, to know when to spin and go. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we, we spend a lot of time with people out in the water doing what we call prediction and observation drills where you're looking at waves predicting what they're going to do making you know predicting to us out loud where's it going to break where are the sections going to be which is going to be the fast and slow parts and then all importantly observing the wave and seeing if it did what you thought it would do yeah that's really really important this is just slightly more than that because this is an entirely unconscious process i mean that yeah. that process falls outside that 80 millisecond timeline and can still be slightly logical there's no way that this can be a conscious thought. This all yep. happens subconsciously. And it's just, you know, next time you're pulling into a barrel or, or taking off on waves, it's all going wrong. Make sure that you're looking at the part of the wave that's, that's going to in the future inform you. And don't worry if you wiped out because it's still going to be super, super helpful because you're in informing that cognitive yep. baseline. Very cool. Very interesting. If you're interested in the subject and you want to find out more about it, you can Google David Eagleman and the flash leg effect. And also David Epstein's book, The Sports Gene, is a really good read for sports coaches of, of, uh, in any sport. So, in fact, very excitingly, listeners, you do not need to Google it. After much request from all of you, we do now have a proper show yes, notes page 
uh, on the Surf Simply website. So if you go to the surfsimply.com and you go to the podcast page, you're going to be able to listen to this podcast, but you're also going to be able to see all the links for everything we've been talking about over the course of this episode. We'll embed all the movies and, and photographs and stuff like that. So yeah, come and come and visit that and have a little look around. That's going to be at surfsimply.com slash podcast. It is indeed. Very exciting. And thank you very much, Mark, for uh, putting in the time and uh, sorting all that out. On the thank yous, I think we should thank the guys at NSR Beach House and Nicaragua Surf Report who've uh, have let us come stay in this beautiful house, which oh, is pretty it's awesome. Oh, amazing. Very yeah. cool. Thanks, guys. All right. Well, we're going to keep the recording nice and short this week. So that is all we have time for. I hope you guys have enjoyed the show. Please do let us know. Email podcast at surfsimply.com if you have any comments or any feedback. But for now, from all of us, goodbye. See you later, guys. Bye. That was the Surf Simply podcast from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. Find us on facebook.com slash surfing or at surfsimply.com.